thank you for your reading and for your prayer. So this week, we're... I'm... If you don't know me, I am the intern here at Grace Valley. My name is Keith Williams, um, a recent graduate from seminary and have been at Grace Valley working for the last few months, been attending Grace Valley for about four years. Uh, and if you're not aware, we're going through a, a series called The Once and Future King, which focuses on the life of David. And as we look at King David and Samuel, we're trying to, to understand the story and how it's relevant for us in our world, but then we're also trying to read David's story and make legitimate connections with Jesus Christ, how David foreshadows his own descendant, his greater descendant, Jesus. And so this week, this is the, the fifth sermon in, the, in this series, and, and last week we talked about um, David and Jonathan and their friendship in 1 Samuel 20, and we saw their, their parting, and we saw that, that we need true friendship, and we saw through their example the heart of true friendship and how that ultimately points to our greatest friend, Jesus. Well, this week we, we jump ahead a few chapters in our story. And, and for David in his situation, he is still a wanted man. He, he is an outlaw. King Saul, the, the king of Israel, is, is desperate to kill David in order to protect his own throne, to protect his power. He doesn't want to give it up. And so David, maybe in some ways, is like a, a Robin Hood or a, a Rob Roy type figure. The, the, his, his king, his authorities are out to get him. And he has a small band of men, a ba band of men that are no match for Saul's army. And, and they're forced to flee into the wilderness, into the En Gedi for protection. And today, the story we just heard, David is faced with this surprising dilemma. He is given the perfect opportunity to take matters into his own hands, to get back at King Saul. The, the dilemma, do I kill Saul or do I spare his life? And, and it's actually in that moment where we can relate, in that context, we can relate to this story here today, to David's situation. When someone has wronged us, hurt us, sinned against us, we too can be tempted to take matters into our own hands, to want to, to pay them back, to get them back. We can be tempted to seek vengeance. And so we're left with this, this question that arises in the, from this dilemma. Is it right to seek vengeance? How should we respond when opportunities arise to get back at those who have hurt us? Should we choose vengeance or mercy? Well, today, as we look, reflect on this story, we're going to look at four points. We're going to look at the temptation of vengeance. We're going to look at the humility of mercy the power of mercy, and the triumph of mercy. And la last week, uh, Jonathan and David, they part, and when they part, they don't know if they're going to ever see each other again as friends. They don't know wh what the future holds in store. David musters together about 600 soldiers, and they're, they're fleeing through the countryside, and they're, they're carefully trying to evade Saul and his army, and they also have to be mindful of their traditional enemies like the Philistines and others. And, and, and so King Saul... He's desperate, but he's also becoming more hardened. He's resulting to more lower methods, evil methods. So, so at one point, he actually orders his men to kill Jewish priests, you know, modern-day pastors, and their families. Why? Because they gave David food. They gave David Goliath's sword. They helped him. And the command is so dark 
that Saul's own men, loyal to him, say, well, really? You want us to kill priests and their families because they gave David food? And they refuse. And, and Saul won't be deterred. He, he relies on outside thugs to do the killing for him. And 85 people who helped David or who were related to people who helped David are murdered. Saul is becoming worse and worse, and David increasingly needs to become more creative. How can I get away from him? How can I survive? And so David and his men, they flee to the En Gedi, this hilly, mountainous region just west of the, the Dead Sea in Israel. It has all these, these caves and these valleys and rocks, and it would be a, a perfect place for a smaller group of men to evade a larger army, to outmaneuver them. And, and so in the, the back of this cave resting in the shade, protection. And then this sets the stage for our first point here today. The temptation of vengeance. The temptation of vengeance. Imagine that you are with David in his men. You're in the back of the cave, keeping cool in the shade. Maybe you're, you're talking quietly. Some of you are napping. Then you hear something at the front of the cave. Someone's coming in. And you, you peek over the rock, and you see it's King Saul. King Saul, alone, he's come in. And then it becomes very clear that he has come into the cave to relieve himself. What that most likely means is that Saul needs to go to the washroom. Even kings have to go number two sometimes. And, and if you're David, this is the perfect opportunity to kill Saul. You have your men, you're armed, he's alone, he's going to the bathroom. Saul's incredibly vulnerable. Saul has no idea that David and his men are there. He takes off his robe. You can imagine perhaps him squatting, not to, to flush out the point too much, but it's not glamorous, and Saul is very vulnerable. And so do you, do you see what's going on? Can you feel that temptation well up inside of David? You know, I've done nothing wrong towards you, Saul. I have only ever been a faithful subject and warrior. You've ruined my life. You've made me an outlaw. You tried to kill me. You have killed, murdered people who have helped me. And, and besides, didn't God anoint me too? Aren't, aren't I supposed to become king? Wouldn't it just be easier to finish things right here and now? C could save lives and be for the greater good? Aren't God's people supposed to be lovers of justice? Well, I could dish out some justice right now. See, David is tempted to take matters into his own hands. Tempted to take revenge. And here, this is very relevant for our world, because our hearts are not any different. We are prone to the same problem. When someone has legitimately wronged us, offended us, hurt us, what is a typical reaction? If we're honest with ourselves, or if you observe people online or in person, you hurt me, well then I'll hurt you back. You offended me, well then I am going to delight in your destruction and demise. You deserve what you get. Don't come to me for help. Maybe you think, okay, that seems a bit harsh and it's a bit overdramatic. Are we really like that? Well, we'll kind of start with just a couple ordinary, ordinary examples. You know, suppose someone in you, you've been, you've been texting with them, messaging them, and you know they read your text and they don't respond. Maybe a couple hours go by, maybe a couple days go by before, oh yeah, hey, sorry, and they respond. And some of us can get quite offended that they didn't immediately respond to us, and we can be, you know what, <laughs> okay, I see you texting me, you know what, 
I'll just wait. You made me wait, I'll make, wait. I'll make you wait longer. I'll show you who's boss. And we passive aggressively take our revenge. Or if you're driving on the, the 403, the 401, there's, there's a saying where if anyone drives faster than us, they must be crazy. If they drive slower than us, terrible driver. So you're, you're driving along, and you get stuck behind someone doing 95 and 100, and you can't pass them. If you're anything like me, your blood begins to boil. What are you doing driving on the highway? Learn how to drive. Or you're, you're driving along, and someone cuts you off, zips right in front of you, speeding. In both scenarios, many of us, we get upset, and we just, you know what? It would be so much fun just to cut you off, speed up, pass you. Maybe jump in front of you, then I'll slow down, see how you like it. See, in these ordinary, simple ways, we can show that same heart. But in those moments, you didn't, you, hopefully you didn't try to kill anyone. But in more serious moments, where people that are often closer to us, see, the people we're, we're closest with, that we love the most, oftentimes they can hurt us the most, cause the deepest wounds. Your parents, our siblings, maybe an old friend, or a spouse. And in these moments when they hurt us, we can be tempted to lash out against them, even whom we love. We can want to return the favor. You've, you've hurt me. I'm in pain. You can feel the same pain I'm feeling. We lash out. One story I, I came across this week was a, a woman. She grew up in a, a very difficult home. Her family did not treat her well in all sorts of ways. And in particular, her mother was not a very good mother, not a very kind or loving mother. And so as the years go by and she becomes an adult, she moves away as quickly as she can. Don't want anything to do with her. And so this daughter eventually gets a call from her mom years later. Her mom is sick, terminally sick, only has a few more months to live. And she doesn't have anyone to take care of her. And she asks her daughter, will you come home? Will you take care of me? And in that moment, the daughter is left with a dilemma, a decision. Do I, do I ignore my mom's calls? You were not a good mother to me. You did not help me when I was a little one. Don't come to me for help. How do you like it now? Does she choose vengeance? Or does she say, I'll come home. I will take care of you. I will show you mercy. See, vengeance is often tempting to us. Because we convince ourselves when we're trying to rationalize with ourselves, we say it's proper justice. Yet, if we're going to understand vengeance properly in our human fallenness, in our sinfulness, when we seek vengeance, we often do it. We do it in sinful anger, with other motives, oftentimes with bitterness. We're not interested in actual justice, what is right before God. We're interested in settling a personal score score where we conveniently come out on top. And, and actually, we want to take the place of God in that moment. How so? Well, we want to be the ones who will deal out the final judgment and justice. We will be the ones who finally make things right. We want to be that ultimate judge. And so in the face of such a, a powerful and human temptation, how does David respond in our story? Well, this leads us to, to our second point. See, in contrast to the temptation of vengeance, 
David responds with mercy and in humility. We see the humility of mercy. The humility of mercy. So here we have David with the sword in hand. And he sneaks up beside, behind Saul. And he cuts off the corner of his robe, the edge of his robe. And he goes back to his men. And his men are like, okay, fine. You know what? You don't want to do it? We'll do it. We'll finish him. And in verse, verse 7, it talks about David sharply rebuking his men. And, and that is true. A more literal translation, David tore into his men. There is a heated argument between them. David will not let them touch Saul. See, well, while God would deliver David's enemies into his hands, they're right when the men tell it to David. God was talking about the Philistines, not Saul. His men are, are quoting God out of context. And David here knows this, and he doesn't only show mercy to Saul. David actually goes above that. David protects Saul. David will not let his men harm Saul. He protects and loves his enemy. He does not, David does not give in to the temptation of thinking the opportunity to do something means permission to do that. Just because you might have the opportunity by providence to do something doesn't mean God wants you to do that. David illustrates here actually what the Apostle Paul would write centuries later in Romans 12. When Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is in the right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David knows he is anointed. He knows his identity. He knows one day he will be king, and he knows Saul has wronged him. This is not trying to excuse bad behavior or evil. As if it's somehow Saul has a, a right reason for doing what he is. What Saul has done is sinful and evil. But David also knows it is not his place to deal out death and judgment here. God has given the Philistines into his hands, yes, but God has not promised to give Saul into his hands. And so David is mindful. While he has the opportunity to kill Saul here, it is not right. It's not right before God, it's not right in his conscience. It's not right before others, even if they're encouraging him to do it. No. David will repay Saul's evil with good in return. He responds and overcomes to Saul's evil with good. And so here, David shows himself to be a man of mercy. A man who does, does not take judgment into his own hands to settle personal scores. But he humbly here submits to God. He knows God is just. God is sovereign. God is in control. So you know what? I can trust that in the end, in his time and in his ways, God will make everything right. I don't need to take his place. And isn't it this interesting? So David, because he shows mercy here, David will become to be known as a man of mercy. Being a merciful man, 
a theme that, that would connect in future generations and, and will actually connect with a descendant of David, Jesus. See, more, more than any other gospel, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is associated with being a man of mercy like David. Not once, not twice, but, but four times in the gospel of Matthew alone, people call out to Jesus for help, but they call out to him for mercy by a special name, a unique name. In, in Matthew 9, Jesus is, is leaving a big crowd, he's walking away, and two blind men call out to him. They say, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus, in teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in his own words, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Or, or his stepbrother James, in the book of James, says, mercy triumphs over judgment. See, David, Jesus, Paul, James are all unified here. They teach us that we as God's people are to be people of mercy. Now, how, how might that look for us in our context? Well, when we have those opportunities like David has here in our text to get back at those, to get back at that person at work or in your family or on your street, we don't take them. We withhold our judgment. Maybe, maybe you could say those crushing words, those words that you just know will deflate that person. Those passive-aggressive, snippy comments. You just chip away at someone. No, you refrain. You bite your tongue. And rather than that, maybe you actually respond with kind words. Words in gentleness. Encouraging words. Maybe, maybe you have had a big fight with someone. Maybe in your family, maybe in a dear old friend. And maybe you haven't really talked in years. You don't talk to each other. Or if you do, it's, it's short discussions. They're kind of cold and personal, pretty dry. Well, showing mercy, maybe you pick up the phone and call them. Not to settle a score, not to relive old arguments. Maybe simply to say, hey, I've been thinking about you. I've missed you. How are you doing? Can we talk? Can we get together for dinner? You extend a hand of mercy. Another example of this is the, the woman, the daughter I mentioned earlier. So how, how did she respond when her mom called her? Her response was, Okay, mom, I will come. I will come take care of you. And, and in the final months of her mother's life, she, she moved back in and, and she had to, to clothe her mom, feed her mom, constant companion, talking together. She did not use the opportunity to settle old scores. Now, if there's going to be judgment, I will leave that for God to sort out. I'm going to love my mom and be good to her. She showed the love of Christ, the mercy of David, and the son of David, Jesus. And so maybe one uh, takeaway, application for you and I both to think on, to reflect on, is there someone in our life who has wronged us, whom we love to judge, we love when they face trial, that we, with the Holy Spirit's help, whom we can love, who we can extend a hand of mercy to them? Now, you might be thinking, okay, that sounds Christian. How do I do that? How can I show mercy to people who have deeply hurt me. You don't know what they've done. They deserve what they get. 
Well, that leads us to our third point, that the power of mercy, the power of mercy. Let's think back to our cave. David was easy to be wrestling with all sorts of questions. It would have been easy for him to to rationalize things. Saul isn't going to change. What's the point? Am I supposed to suffer so evil can prosper? it's It's not that I'm out for revenge. This is just about what's fair. This is about justice. I really have no personal score to settle. David also understood here, murder is never just, is never right. David does not have a right to kill Saul. There's a bit of an older movie now, 1998 movie, Les Miserables, uh, where Liam Neeson plays uh, Jean Valjean, this old criminal who's released and, and he becomes a kind and a good man after he escaped from parole. Uh, parole. And have uh, Joffrey Rush, who plays Inspector Javert, this cold, heartless, ruthless police inspector, and he is obsessed with catching Valjean, with destroying Valjean's life. And, and so in the movie, there's a scene after this rebellion in, in Paris. The inspector is actually caught by the rebels. He's tied up, bound. He's in this house, and Valjean, the criminal, meets the inspector who's been pursuing him all these years. And they let him, Valjean, take him out into the alleyway, take him out back. Some privacy, just you two. Valjean has a pistol and a knife and they go back, uh, pushes him up against the wall, and they talk back and forth and the inspector says, you've managed to beat me. Valjean says, I'm not trying to beat you, I'm trying to live my life in peace. Well, hurry up and do it. A knife, that suits you better. And Valjean cuts the ropes. The inspector says, oh, you're planning on shooting me in the back. And Valjean says, I don't have the right to kill you. Bang! Shoots his pistol up into the air and lets the inspector go. He shows him mercy. See, David understands, I don't have the right to kill Saul. He's my king. A man who was once anointed by the Lord. You know what? No, what? No. The Lord anointed Saul. The Lord can remove Saul in his own time. See, that's the major, that's one major difference between our human vengeance and God's justice. Vengeance seeks to personally inflict punishment on someone or some group who has wronged us. Whereas justice is about what someone deserves, yes, but it's administered by lawful authorities, by God give, by someone who has the God-given right to administer justice. If someone uh, breaks in and steals your car, you do not have the right. It is not moral to go break their leg a week later and take back your car. No, you report it to the police. The lawful authorities arrest the man, your car is returned. That's justice. We do not have the power to take justice into our own hands all the time and settle scores the way we think is fit. Back to our text here. See, David knows he will triumph. His kingdom will come. But David's kingdom will not come with bloodshed and violence, at least not by his own doing. David will come to power in a way that is unlike other kings, especially of the ancient world. He will not come by plotting assassinations, trying to violently usurp a throne. No, David will come to the throne with clean hands, in righteousness. And, and, and this reflects a future king to come. You see, when Jesus came here upon earth and inaugurated his kingdom, 
he did not come with violence and opposing all those with violence who, who opposed him. No, he came in humility and in mercy. Even though if there was anyone who had the right, who would be the right person to deal out death and judgment, it is Jesus, it is him. And he withheld it. He extended mercy. He knew that there, there will be a day for the final judgment when all things are made right. But that day is not today. It is not yet. No, Jesus extends mercy to people, to sinners in the Gospels. Jesus has extended mercy to sinners throughout history. Jesus extends mercy to sinners here today, to me and to you. In the Gospels, Jesus gives us the clearest demonstration of mercy. Jesus fulfilled the words of Paul in Romans 12. He did not repay evil for evil. He did not take matters into his own hands. Instead, he entrusted himself to his heavenly Father. He even blessed those who persecuted him. As the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And on the cross... Jesus showed us the greatest mercy of all. He was crucified on the cross to spare us from the judgment we deserve. He was raised from the grave that we would live with him forever, for eternity. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, all of us, all of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Amen. See, mercy, not vengeance, is how David would come to the throne. Mercy, not vengeance, is how Jesus' kingdom would come. It is by mercy that you and I, that if we have faith in Christ today, that we have been saved, that we have been reconciled to God. And so it is now by mercy that we are to live as God's people. We show mercy. When we show mercy, we're trusting, God, you are just. I am submitting this to you. When we show mercy, why we show mercy, we show mercy because he has showed more mercy to us, God has showed more mercy to us in Christ than we can ever properly understand. There's always more to learn of the depths and the riches of God's love and mercy. We wronged God far more than anyone has ever wronged us. And God showed me mercy? When we, can, when we understand that in our heart, he showed me mercy. It transforms our hearts. It softens our hearts. When we take that in, when we're renewed by it, we're enabled to show mercy to others, even those who we think are very difficult. And that leads us to our final point, our fourth point, the surprise that mercy may bring about, the triumph of mercy, the triumph of mercy. See, back in Romans 12, when Paul says to respond to evil with good, he says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. One way to understand this is that when, when we do good to those who are doing evil, it makes them uncomfortable. 
in a good way, it, it shames a person. And, and it might even soften them, begin to, to change behavior because it's so uncomfortable. They know. They're confronted with what is right. And when David comes out of the caves, he speaks to Saul. And he lets Saul know, I could have killed you. Here's a part of your robe. I did not kill you. I am not wicked. I am not seeking to hurt you. I am not your enemy. I have been good to you, and I have spared your life. David keeps burning coals on Saul's head. And how, what is Saul's response? How does he respond? He weeps. For, for a time, he repents. He, he, in turn, spares David's life. He doesn't order his men, attack. No, he talks with David a bit. And then him and his men, they leave. For a moment, Saul understood the truth. For a moment. When, when we show mercy to people, God may use that to bring about repentance, to bring about change in their life, to bear fruit in our lives and in theirs. When we show mercy, we are demonstrating that the power and love and kindness of God's mercy is enough. We don't have to, to settle all the scores because we've been forgiven for more than we could have dreamed. And when we show mercy, we're hoping. You know, it's not, you know what? I'm going to leave it to you because God's just going to get you way worse than I ever could. Take that, sucker. No, we show mercy in the hopes that God would bring about repentance even in the most hardened sinners we know. The, the daughter I mentioned earlier, during those, those final months and, and weeks, the other family kind of came out of the woodworks and the rest of her family remained the same. Difficult people, hard people. But as she cared for her mother, as she loved her mother and showed her mother mercy, she got to talk to her mom about someone who had changed her life, about Jesus Christ and his loving kindness and the, the work he did on the cross to save sinners. And in the final days of her mother's life, her mother came to faith in Christ. So God used that mercy of a daughter sending it to her mother, not only to repair a relationship in the final months, but also to bring about eternal life in a hardened soul. And when we show mercy, it is not a promise that if we're merciful, everyone in our lives will be saved. No, but when we do show mercy, God may use it to bring about the fruit of repentance in lost people we know. God may use it to help restore broken relationships, help us to reconcile with people. That will be the type of fruit, the triumph that mercy can bring. And when we decide, with the Lord's help, we will show mercy, not vengeance. God will use it in way, more ways than we can possibly imagine. He will bring people, inevitably, every, everywhere and every day in different parts of the world. God does use it this way. He will bring people we know who are living in the darkness into the light to bring sinners as redeemed and reconciled children of God into Jesus Christ's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God of all comfort, God of mercy, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of 
your Holy Spirit who is with us now, Lord. May we dwell on your word. May we reflect and meditate on your word. Help us to see your, the mercy you have lavished on us in Christ. Help us to love you, to trust you, to worship you in response. And Lord, help us to think, how can we show and reflect the mercy we have received to those in our lives? For your glory, for the good of your church, for the good of Dundas. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.